You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Those of you just said, wow, you know, you just shared a lot of stuff in terms of a lot of opportunities and and, you know, it, it truly is a lot going on. Uh, and, of course, it does this time every year. We mark this very significant historic event that, as I just prayed, is truly the foundation of what we believe and what we hold dear here at Southwest. And I'm going to participate, as I have over the past several years, with other believers in this community and other believers in this church and in walking down Main Street in Springboro uh, in a procession of people following a wooden cross. But I acknowledge that for those that are outside of faith, if they're driving uh, down 73 when traffic is stopped or on 741 and they observe this procession of people walking behind a cross, that for many that probably seems strange. Like, why would these people do this? For those who have not yet embraced the faith that involves around this historic event that involved a Jewish carpenter who was arrested, convicted of a crime he did not commit, and then executed in an extremely cruel way at the hand of Roman soldiers. Well, for those that don't believe, they might simply think for those that do believe that it's It's a foolish pursuit, a a mindless waste of time and devotion. Now, with this as the backdrop, let's read the biblical text, which is going to be the focus of our attention today, and yet also it's been the inspiration for this entire message series entitled, The Foolishness of God. In fact, we're going to read a verse in this text that says that very phrase. It's found in a Bible passage and in a, in a, actually a letter in the New Testament that's entitled 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read these words, beginning in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God 
is stronger than human strength. My hope is that you, you will not be viewing the, the sentiment of these verses as foolishness or weakness. But instead, this weakness that you will, this weakness, this weekend, excuse me, you will see and embrace the wisdom, power, and hope of God embedded in the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in verse 18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I like what scholar and author N.T. Wright had to say about this verse when he wrote, When this announcement is made, people discover to their astonishment that things change. Lives change. Human hearts change. Situations change. New communities come into being, consisting of people grasped by the message, believing it's true despite everything, falling in love with the God they find to be alive in this Jesus giving Jesus their supreme loyalty. And yet, with that said, let's backtrack and focus on the verses found in verse 22 and 23. I read it earlier from the New International Version, but I like how the New Living Translation also reads in these two verses when we find these words. It's foolish to the Jews who asked for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Now, as we shared previously in this series of messages, this letter was written to a Greek church in the city of Corinth, Greece, that was composed, the church was composed of people both with a Jewish and a non-Jewish or Gentile background. Here, this passage describes them as Greek. Now, in our 21st century context, an an application for us to try to make sense of this is that the Jewish people represented those who had a religious background, a background centered on the God of the Bible. And yet, the Greeks represented those who had a non-religious background or a non-church background. Now, in keeping with our title for this weekend, let's begin with those who do not come from a church or religious background. Thus, the title, Embrace the Nonsense. Now, this is the case for some of you. Maybe you grew up in a family that didn't attend church, and church and, uh, and faith wasn't just a, a part of your life growing up. If that's the case for you, I I can relate to that in a degree because, you see, even though I grew up in a family that attended church, uh, that wasn't the case for my mom and her entire side of the family. So growing up, I had many relatives who didn't attend church. In fact, our family was kind of an exception. And so the entire side of my mom's family uh, were unchurched people. And I know often they looked at our family as a bit odd or a bit maybe even foolish with how we lived out our faith. And if that's the case for you, then maybe you can relate to verse 22. And so the 
We're going to look at two questions today. The first question, if you're taking notes, you might want to fill in the blank. Why is this message of the cross nonsense to many? To the educated Greek individual Paul's day that prided themselves in philosophy, reason, and status, this message made no sense. It made no sense to boast and, and focus on one that appeared to be on the losing end of a political power struggle. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth would have been viewed as someone who posed the power structure of the mighty Roman Empire. And yet, the, it appeared that the Roman authorities won by crucifying who they viewed as a political rebel. So, why should his followers now boast in his death. Now, in our 21st century mind, maybe we can understand this in a different vantage point. You see, we understand in our world that successful companies and organizations spend thousands of dollars to properly develop and market their logo or their brand. We know that because if you see a, a swoosh logo, you know and think of Nike. If you see an Apple icon, you think of Mac. If, if you see the golden arches, you think of McDonald's. We understand that logos and branding is an effective ways of winning successful organizations. Yet, what would you think of me if I started a new organization and adopted as the logo of this new organization, a hangman's noose, or an electric chair. You would think, well, that's odd. That's weird. That's even morbid. It's nonsense. So how do you make sense of an entity that's 2,000 years old that has universally, worldwide, promoted a, as their brand a symbol of capital punishment? You see, that's exactly what a wooden cross meant to the first century world. It was a means of capital punishment. I had someone come to the worship last night, and they said, you know, I never thought of it that way. I've never seen somebody with a gold chain with a dangling electric chair. You see, we would say that's nonsense. But in so many ways, you see, that's what the, the church has embraced as its symbol. We see, we see crosses in everything. Even our logo here at Southwest, it's a little bit off-center, but we have a cross embedded in our logo. I was thrilled that just a, a few weeks before Easter, uh, the cross that we'd been waiting for showed up for our prayer garden. And if you haven't yet snuck down the hallway and looked, it's, it's really, I think, beautiful, and it's so I'm so grateful it showed up before Easter. But you know, you think about throughout the country, crosses mark steeples that mark the locations of places of worship of Christians. We see a cross over our baptistry to mark a very significant event in the life of someone of faith. We see Christians wear jewelry, the crosses, and when Christians die, they often mark their graves with what? A cross. So why do Christians 
identify with that which is actually a sign of death, a sign of capital punishment, a sign of shame. Probably the most famous verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. And maybe even if you don't know what it says, you've seen John 3.16. Maybe you've seen it with somebody holding up a yellow sign in an end zone. Or maybe behind a backboard, uh, a, a basket in, in, in a basketball game, March Madness. And by the way, I just want to let you know... A number of people have expressed concern. I've had, you know, I even had relatives email me saying, are you doing okay? And I thought, man, maybe I just got too carried away this year. Because, uh, yes, yes, my Purdue Boilermakers went down in defeat. And, and I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know, as they just flashed up, you know, I guess maybe I need to set my sights higher because we have more graduates that have been to the moon than have been to the Final Four. But, uh, <clears throat> but with that said... I still love basketball, and uh, I'm still going to hope. But let's look at this verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This famous verse about God's love is found in a book of the Bible that I've challenged all of you to read this Easter season. If this is your first time with us here at Southwest, uh, two weeks ago I challenged everyone three weeks before Easter to pick up one of these free New Testaments out in our lobby, and you can still pick one up, and to read the fourth book in the, in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of John. And I encourage people that if you would read one chapter a day in the three weeks leading up to Easter, that you could read this entire gospel record of Jesus' life. And that during this Easter season, you could look at Jesus afresh and maybe for some for the first time, really up close and personal. And I've taken this challenge myself. In fact, uh, every day I've read, I read this morning John chapter 14, and, and, and I've taken the challenge to every day post something on one of our church's social media outlets, actually, all three of them, and, and to post a verse or verses from that chapter that points specifically to what Jesus came to eventually do, and that's die on a cross And then, of course, next weekend, we'll celebrate the resurrection. It's something that I had never really seen before, and I've read John many times, is how that every chapter there's a reference where Jesus is trying to prepare his followers that he's eventually going to die on a cross. In fact, I came across one chapter, chapter 9, and I thought, okay, I don't think he mentioned he heals a blind man here. And then I went back and read it again, and yes, there's a veiled reference that he's going to die on the cross. And I thought, wow, that was, that was central to what Jesus came to do. And he was trying to prepare his followers to that. He's trying to prepare us as we read his life, that this was his real purpose in coming. And you know, as I... As, as I read even John 3.16 that week, I read from chapter 3, I, I was moved once again of God's love, but, but I see a reference to his death in the verses that precede it. 
You know, most of you probably could at least describe what John 3.16 is. Many of you haven't memorized. But I'm curious how many of you can explain or share what the three verses preceding John 3.16 were all about. What did Jesus say before he said verse 16? Let's go back and read that because the reference is really quite amazing and fitting of our look at the message of the cross. In John 3, verse 13, we read this. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, this is a somewhat obscure reference from the Old Testament that's, that's referenced here right before this most famous verse, John 3.16. It's this obscure story in the life of Moses. It's recorded in the book of Numbers, which is a favorite book of a former math major, okay? But honestly, as someone who's wrestled with faith through the years, the first time I read this story that you can read in Numbers 21, I found myself wrestling with it and trying to understand it. You see, the story is told of, of the Jewish people led by Moses, and it was during a season which they often would do, they rebelled and disobeyed God. And yet on this particular occasion, the consequences of their disobedience was that poisonous snakes were sent into their midst, and they came to realize that they would die from the snake bites and that there was no cure present. And then they cried out to God for deliverance, and surprisingly, God instructed Moses to make and lift up a bronze snake on a pole. And all who looked to that bronze snake would be healed, and they would be saved from the poison. It's kind of an odd story. But in so many ways, it's a precursor for what God did for us in Jesus Christ. But we'll come back to that later. Now, we in this section where we're talking about how the Gentiles or the Greeks were skeptical, thought that the message of the cross was nonsense. And as a naturally skeptical person, the first time I read this story in Numbers 21, I was puzzled by why God would lift up that which was the consequences for their rebellion and disobedience to God. You see, it didn't make sense to me. Just like for years, it didn't make sense to me that Jesus dying on a cross 2,000 years ago had anything to do with me because I lived so much past the time that he was on the earth. It just didn't make sense to me how Jesus dying almost 2,000 years ago would have any bearing on my life. I even thought to myself, I didn't say crucify him. So why am I responsible? It just didn't make sense to me. Why couldn't God just 
simply say to all the people on the planet, I love you, and maybe put a huge heart in the sky and write across the sky, I love you, and that I accept you and want to spend eternity in heaven with you. Honestly, I think that's why many today want to embrace some kind of feel-good message with no sacrifice attached to it to understand God. Maybe that's why some world religions and different views of spirituality seem to flourish in our time. Now, to further wrestle with this dilemma of trying to make sense of how the cross can apply to our life, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. In a a Bible passage that, that places two important aspects of God's nature up against each other, let's dig into this description of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ from a different angle. In Romans 3 verse 24, we read these words. They, talking about people that have been saved, they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this passage is rich. It's, it's dense. There's a lot there. But, but if we will wrestle with this passage, I think the message of the cross will really become much more meaningful to us. You see, yes, as we read from John 3.16, God is a God of love. But as we read through Scripture, we also find that God is a holy God, that God is righteous. And this passage points out that God is also just. What does it mean to be just? This means to be, to be just means that God acts in a just or right way that he carries out justice, he keeps his word, he keeps his laws, and he also demands justice to be honored. God is a just judge. And verse 26 states that God is not, not only just, but he also justifies. In other words, he's not only right and always right, he also makes others right. Let's see if I can help make this more practical by giving an example from my life to help illustrate this aspect of justice. Years ago when Jane and I lived in Indianapolis and our children were real small before we moved to Ohio, I traveled to St. Louis with a group of friends. And upon my return back to Indianapolis, we're, we're driving in to the city of Indianapolis, and it just happened to be the weekend of the Indianapolis 500. What I didn't realize as we're driving into the city, that, that one particular county in Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis, had set up a speed trap, okay? Now, you might say, well, you, you're 
you know, you're probably reading into it. You just got caught speeding, Roger. Well, let me tell you the whole story, okay? First of all, I'm driving, and by the way, I have struggled with a heavy foot through the years, so I will confess that. But, but I'm driving, this group of friends, we're driving into Indianapolis, and my friend that owned the car we were driving, he had let us know that the speedometer was broke. I'm just not making this up. It really was. The speedometer was broke, and he said, just stay with the flow of traffic, and you'll be okay. Well, I was doing that, and some of the other guys were sleeping. We're driving back, and And I come up over a hill, and when I crest the hill on the highway there, there's a police car, actually a couple police cars, and there's actually, I've never seen this before, but I got caught in it. There was actually a a policeman out on the highway, and he had a flashlight, and he was just, he was like parking cars. There was a helicopter overhead, and he was tracking our speed. And the police, I mean, there was a line of us pulled over. Yes, I'd stayed with the flow of traffic, and I ended up (laughs) in a parking lot of people that were getting tickets. Well, I was mad. Okay, I'm just being honest. I was mad because I thought, first of all, my, my friend's speedometer's broke. He should pay the ticket. And he just said, well, I hope it works out for you, okay? What a friend that was, okay? Then... I'm thinking that was unfair. You know, they're just trying to capitalize on people coming in the city for the 500. And so somebody told me that if both the the helicopter cop and the ground cop didn't show up in court, that I could maybe get out of the ticket. So you know what I I did? I went to court. I don't know if anybody's ever gone to court to try to fight a ticket, but I drove back out of town to that county, and I showed up, and I had my mathematical argument in place that if he just missed it by a second, that it could throw off from the sky, you know, so many miles. And and yes, I'm a nerd, but I tried to figure this out. Well, I knew I was cooked because both the helicopter cop and the, the ground cop walked into court, and I went, okay. It's not looking good. And there was a whole group of people that had got tickets that day. And I gave my feeble argument to the judge, and he declared me guilty of speeding. And the sentence for my crime was, I think it was back then $140. Some of you have told me it's gone up since then. But, and I, I felt stuck because I knew down deep. I'd been speeding. And I knew down deep I deserved that sentence. Now, what would have been powerful? You see, the the judge was right to say it. He was just. It was the right thing. But what would have been powerful is if at that very moment that he declared me guilty and that the fine had to be paid, wouldn't it have been great if he'd pulled out his wallet And says, because I care for you so deeply, and he pulled out $140 and put it on the bench and said, payment made. You see, he would have been at that moment both just and justifier. A little bit later in Romans, Romans 6, 23, we find a single verse that speaks volume. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God is truly a just judge who is also the justifier. 
He says, yes, the consequences for anyone who sins is death. That payment has to be paid because he's a just God. He keeps his word. But because he's justifier, he says, but I'm going to make the payment for you. I'm going to send my son, my only son to earth. And he's going to take your death payment upon himself. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jesus willingly did that. He willingly played the part of the justifier. You see, in many ways, the cross of Christ is the collision of God's love and God's justice. And the suffering of Jesus on the cross is the means with which God upholds both his justice and his love. And yet, Paul says, the cross is not only nonsense to some, but our last point, which is going to be brief, it's also offensive to others. So our second and last question is, why is the message of the cross offensive to others? In my research for this message, I went back and read an old sermon by Billy Graham, who just recently passed away after a long ministry of integrity and impact. In a message that he first preached in 1958, It was entitled, Why Does the Cross Offend People? I want you to listen to these words that Billy Graham wrote. He says, I've found in my own ministry that I can preach anything else, and it's called popular. It pleases the ear. But when I come to the heart of Christianity, when I come to the cross and the blood and the resurrection, that is the stumbling block. That's the thing people do not want to hear. That's the thing that's an offense. And yet it's the very thing that is the heart of the gospel. Without the cross, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. And I say, amen. Earlier in the book of Romans, which is another letter that Paul wrote, addressing the differences between those who are Greek and non-Jewish and those who are Jewish or religious, In chapter 1, if you read the book of Romans, I love it, but he says the problems with the non-Jewish, the irreligious people of this world, they do all kinds of ungodly things out of ignorance and rebellion to the God who created them. And yet in chapter 2, he says the Jewish people are no better. They had the Old Testament law, and they knew better, but they still didn't keep it. And then he gets to chapter 3, and he writes this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You see, the offense of the message of the cross is to those who've been religious, to those who've tried to live a moral life. You see, to really embrace the cross Someone has to wrestle with the fact that Jesus died for all people, not just the irreligious. He also died for the religious. If you come from a religious, moral background, to really understand the cross, you have to accept that Jesus died for you, too. And to really accept this gift, you have to first acknowledge that you 
are a sinner and that you have sin. That's why after that section we just read from Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul summarized, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Personally, I can relate to both questions today. You see, I can relate to the Greek mindset and the Jewish mindset. On one hand, growing up, I tried to make sense of everything instead of simply accepting it by faith. And because at times the cross didn't make sense to me, it really seemed nonsense. I wouldn't admit it, but that was what I struggled with in my heart. And yet, on the other hand, because of the faith of my parents, I was raised in a religious moral home. And in my mind, sin was that which other people did, the things that people from a moral family just wouldn't do. And it wasn't until I came to grips with my own sinfulness that I really embraced the message of the cross. It's only then that I embraced the good news of the power and wisdom of God. Until that time, the cross just didn't make sense to me. And in many ways, like the Jews that Paul's describing, it was a stumbling block to me. I just couldn't get my mind wrapped around it. You see, I hadn't murdered anyone. But later when I wrestled with what the Bible said sin is all about, I recognized that I had hated people. Jesus says, if you hate You've murdered them in your heart. Maybe I hadn't committed adultery or had premarital sex, but I had lusted. Maybe I hadn't stolen, but I had been envious. You see, I agree with Frederick Buechner. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. Before we can really embrace the good news of the cross, we've got to embrace first the bad news of our personal condition without the cross. And as we pull this message together and prepare for communion, I want to share one more passage with you. It's a passage that Paul wrote in the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 5, it's not in your notes, but 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, he says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You see, Jesus' death is the cure for our sin. And just like that reference earlier we referred to of Moses, He's the cure for our sin that's lifted up on a pole for us to look at, for us to understand that the solution for our sinful condition is a solution we can't provide for ourselves. That yes, the very very result of our own sin and our own rebellion against God, the consequences of that, which is death, is that which Jesus was willing to pay for us. Yes, the gospel is not good news until we first recognize the bad news. The bad news is that we are all sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God. And that once we embrace the bad news of our own sin, then we can embrace the good news of God's love and His justice that collided at the cross. 
Will you think about this and the application to your life as we observe a time of communion? As we pass the the bread that represents His body, as we pass the cups that represent His blood, let this not be a, a theological just exercise that's just symbolic, but allow it to be personal, to reflect on the amazing love of a just, holy God that loves you and loves me so much that He says, I can't bear the thought of you bearing your own consequences. And said, I'm going to give my son so that he'll take that payment of sin upon himself. Allow this to be very personal. Allow this to be a time of gratitude. Allow this to be a time to truly embrace the message of the cross. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you, Father, that you're also just, that we can have confidence that you keep your word. And Father, I just marvel at how you were true to yourself and yet so sacrificial by sending your son to this earth. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to justify us by being our payment for sin. Help us embrace your love. Help us embrace your holiness. Help us be drawn to you anew during this time of communion as we celebrate your love and your holiness and your justice. It's in Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 p.m.